0: Yo, yo, this is Sid Shaw, and we are back with another hot, hot episode of Chasing the White Rabbit. Remember, if you like what you hear, give us five stars on Apple, tell a friend, leave a comment. We're really excited about our next guest, Lydia Finette. She is a global managing director at Christie's Auction House, the premier auction house around the world, it's been around since the 1700s. She's led auctions for more than 600 organizations and raised over half a billion dollars for nonprofits globally. She's the who's who of uh, New York and, and pretty much has been featured in every single publication you can think about. And we get a chance to talk about her amazing book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room Is You. So let's get into it. All right. I am super excited to have Lydia Finette on the podcast today currently a managing director at Christie's and, um, you know, I, I've been studying your background and I really love, um, the story I heard and read about, about how, how, when you started at Christie's, uh, you started off as an intern, but before when you applied, there wasn't room in the program. And then somehow you, you, you wiggled your way in. And then when you were in, you've, you kind of, you know, navigated, uh, and a space in there and created your own space to kind of take the company over essentially and, and become a leader in the company. I'd love to, I'd love for you to tell that story in your own words.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I first started working at Christie's, as you said, as an intern when I was 20, I was in college. I'd sort of read an article about the firm. And as you said, I kind of wiggled my way into the firm by, basically stalking uh, the woman who's running the internship program at that time. And once I sort of arrived there, I realized it was a place that I really loved. And I feel like I dug in in a major way, which is a huge part of who I am. I really, anytime I feel like I'm in the place where I should be, I feel the best way to showcase my ability to do things is just put in as much hard work as I possibly can. And so I started, you know, as I said, when I was 20, my first internship, I came back when I was 21 to do a second internship after I graduated and then was hired out of that internship full time. And I worked for the company it had been about 10 years at that point. I started off in the special events department and about six years into that career, everyone above me left in rapid succession, which is kind of a hilarious thing because, you know, when you're junior in a department and you see what's going on, if the people above you are good at their job, you just assume it's very easy. But all of a sudden, after telling everybody that I really wanted these promotions and getting promoted to head of events for North and South America at a very young age, I realized that I actually had a, quite a lot on my plate. And so I would say the next four years were learning about the job and really understanding what it took to be a senior leader in the company. And I think this is the part of the story that will ring true to people who, especially young women who've worked in companies. you know, Along the way, anytime I'd asked for a raise or I'd asked for any kind of incremental bonus, I was sort of patted on the head by my boss who I loved. And he would say things like, well you don't really you don't really need to talk about money, Lydia, or oh, you know that's just not the way that we do things here you're lucky to work at christie's and and I really believed him. you know I'd started at such a young age, and I had been told that for ten years, so why wouldn't I believe when somebody told me that I was lucky to have the job and lucky to work there and yeah. essentially, I was at brunch one day with a, a couple of my friends and I had a roommate at the time, and I always say when I tell this story to people who live outside of New York City, this sounds like a horrifying thing. But in New York City, I lived in a one-bedroom apartment where we had built a wall to create a living room. So not a large space. Um, it was a nice building, but that's pretty much all I can say for it. Uh, there was about as much space as a bed would allow for both rooms and then a small couch and a TV in the living room. And I had a roommate who was moving out, um, and I was at brunch with my friends, and I said, does anybody else know anyone who might want to move in? And, you know, at this point, I'm 30 years old, and I know everyone sort of said, oh, we'll help you look for someone. And then another friend of mine later in the brunch said – I actually am buying a one bedroom. Um, So I would love for you guys to come over and see it. And I just remember sitting at the brunch being so floored by the notion that she somehow had had enough to buy a one bedroom apartment at the age of 30, actually just to buy a one bedroom apartment even at the age of 30. And it was interesting because I sort of pulled her aside after brunch and, and jokingly said, you know, we have the same job. I'm so, I'm so curious as to how you would have been able to do that since we, you know, live off of the food that the servers are serving to our guests that night, because we don't make anything because we work for the glamour of our job. And she looked at me like I had three heads and Mm -hmm. was sort of like, what are you talking about? You know, and it was interesting because, you know, her father had been in finance and had at a very early age, just taught her how to save and really instilled in her that it was up to her to create the destiny for her life, not in terms of what she wanted to do, but in terms of creating a monetary structure that would allow her to live the life that she wanted. Um, And my parents have always very much been like, you can do whatever you want. The world is your oyster. But those basic financial tips had never been part of the conversation you know I grew up in the south these weren't things we discussed polite families don't discuss these things and so I found myself at the age of 30 in in a bit of a a bit of a hard spot because I was realizing what I had lost in the past 10 years but I was also realizing what I wanted for the next 10 years. And so I started doing market research and I started asking everyone I knew what they made, which was a very uncomfortable conversation for a lot of people. But eventually I realized that I was basically making a third of what I should be making. Like not not a half, a third. And had been for 10 years. And with armed with that information, I created wow. a business plan for a new department that I wanted to start at Christie's and basically marched into my boss's office and told him that I was leaving in two weeks, which... You know, you can say that you're leaving a company in two weeks, but in my role, I had such a deep understanding of what our clients needed. And we were walking into the busiest two weeks of our year where in the auction world, you're transacting a couple of billions, billion of dollars of art and you're entertaining those people during those two weeks. So the fact that I was thinking of walking out of the door in two weeks was not something he wanted to hear.
0: Which is the leverage that you needed probably.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And I knew it, you know, I knew I was good at my job. I knew that they weren't going to make me walk, but I didn't at that time understand what that actually meant in a, in a job. And when I said that, he said exactly what I wanted him to say, which was, well, what, what would it take to make you stay? And, you know, thankfully, I'd spent the time figuring that out. And I said, you know, I want triple my salary and I want to be a senior vice president here. And I want to start this new department because I see a revenue opportunity that we are not tapping into in this company. And we, we sort of negotiated, you know, over the course of the day. And by the end of the day, I had everything that I wanted. And it was just... Such a watershed moment for me in my career and even in my life about asking for things and not being afraid to go after what you want and realizing that you deserve what you are working for. And so that was the third chapter of the book. And that was, you know, such a great chapter to write because I felt like I was putting that story out there to people who may not have heard it. Um, or may not have thought of it or even believed it in themselves. So just giving other people the confidence to walk in and have that conversation, I think was really the point of that story being in the book.
0: And yeah, I mean, in general, you know, you're never going to get anything back if you don't ask for it, right? And you have nothing to lose by asking for it. And that's always a tough lesson for everybody to learn for the first time.
1: It's so true. It's so true. And you don't believe it. You really are sort of like, no, you know, if I ask, they'll think this of me when in fact that's not the case. And so I often say to people now, the biggest lesson for me that I learned then, and what I know now is that business is business. It is not personal. And so, you know, you can work for a company for 30 years. They have a change in management. They fire you. It doesn't mean that you don't love your company, but you have to think about money as a different thing. Absolutely. Um,
0: When you, when you think about kind of your point of view on business and, um, on, on kind of just surviving in a corporate culture or working your way up, what do you think is the one clear non-mainstream view that you have, that you believe that has helped you get here where you are today?
1: I truly think when things start going sideways, I mean, I, you know, I lived in New York through two, 2001 through September 11th, I lived in New York through the recession and even now everything that's been going on with coronavirus, for some reason, I had the ability to not, crumple under pressure, under, under all of the emotions and the weight of all of those things. And instead I sort of go into this thinking mode and all of a sudden a great deal of clarity comes for me. And so, you know, the art world is not doing what we want it to be doing right now. We are not able to get our clients in the way that we want them to. And yet, for some reason, instead of making me scared and feel like I want to go into a hole that makes me energized and makes me think about different ways and opportunities that we can access those clients and create new th- things that are going to help drive our business. So it's, a, it's definitely something that... like The ability to pivot very quickly is, I think, probably the greatest, the greatest thing that I have in my toolbox. And I bring it out. Constantly, not even obviously under major sort of pandemics and world issues, but but at other times too on a much smaller scale.
0: Well, it makes sense. I mean, you're you're certainly at the front of your organization, you're you're wheeling, you're dealing, you're building relationships. If you're not able to pivot, then you're not able to kind of read what's happening with the market and and read what's happening with your customers.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly.
0: Um, what when you look back at the arc of your career, what are some of the common threads that you you kind of keep on pulling on? You know, um, we talked a little bit about that first thread was the ability to ask for something that you didn't feel comfortable with. There must be so many more that you've when you look back and you wrote this book um, that you saw there are some some common themes um, across the arc of your career.
1: I think more than anything, it would be just sheer perseverance and you know, not really taking no for an answer and, and learning over time to be less afraid to ask for things because you're not worried about the answer being no, which I think honestly is the biggest superpower there is in life. Because you know, if you think about how many people are constantly scared about the answer no and how it keeps them from actually asking the question in the first place, you realize like, how many things have not been done in life because of that. And so, you know, I I fully, every time I feel like I don't want to do something or I don't want to make an ask, I push myself to do it, even if I have to sort of fight through the ick in my stomach, because I know ultimately that's the only way that I'm going to challenge myself, try new things and get new things done.
0: That's really powerful. I mean, um, I I love, I love people who chip away at the word no, because, you know, I, I I actually think when you get told no, it's the fastest way to figure out how do you get them to, to yes, right? Is because you already know what they're saying yeah. no about, but you have the ability to pivot your idea or change your idea or, or get it in a way that meets the requirements that they're having. And I think that's the most powerful thing. If you can understand that and not take it personally.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, let's talk about your book for a moment. I'm, I'm really excited about it. I just ordered it this morning and I'm going to read it definitely before my, my, I give it to my wife, um, because, uh, because of these themes are so important. I mean, I understand that the book is called the most powerful woman in the room is you, but I mean, you know, what you're talking about obviously resonates with everybody who's trying to trying to make an impact. Um, how did you begin to codify these lessons that defined you over the last decade. It's so easy to, you know, have a, a bunch of things that you use in your toolkit, but to actually be able to codify them in chapters and then have them, you know, in bite-sized chunks so other people can use them as part of their toolbox is not an easy, it's not an easy thing to do.
1: You know, it was interesting. There were so many times that I would get off stage after auctions when people would come up to me and say, I don't understand how you do that. How do you get on stage and ask people for, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and then sort of smile and walk away if, if they, you get it and smile and walk away if you don't. And you know, the common, the common thing I would hear for, especially from women was, I just can never do that. I could never ask for anything. I just can't sell anything. I just can't sell myself. And when I really started to unpack that statement, because I heard it so many times over the years from women of all ages and guys too, but mainly from women. When I started to really think about how I learned that, it all came from being on stage as an auctioneer. And, you know, I say in the book, it's not, I'm not an art auctioneer, I'm a charity auctioneer. So I'm getting on stage trying to sell you something that you frankly probably don't want. But the end goal is to make money for a charity. And so, you know, when I really when I really thought through those lessons and how I learned it, I realized that I could tell those stories in a way that people could understand how I learned them. And I thought that maybe that might help them in their own path. If they saw somebody who had stumbled a couple of times or had been able to succeed in something, and this is how that worked, it might inspire them to try something that they may not have tried or to feel like they had a little more confidence in their voice.
0: When you, when you look at the core of your sales approach and how you, how do you ensure that it's authentic and not too salesy like a used car salesman. How do you make sure that when, when you're talking to the other side of the table, they believe that you believe in what you're selling?
1: I think that's the core to selling. And, you know, when, when I tell the story in the book about trying out to be an auctioneer and I was 24 at the time, and I was trying out with a room of 19 other people, you know, I think 18 of whom were guys and they were all 10 to 15 years older than me. And I did exactly what I thought I should do in that situation, which was I just acted like them. Because, you know, if you close your eyes and think of an auctioneer, you certainly don't think of a 24-year-old young woman on stage. You definitely Mm -hmm. think of, you know, a 70-year-old man in a bow tie with a British accent if you think of an auctioneer at all. Um, Although some people would also say they think of cattle auctioneers. So (laughs) take your pick. But it's not a 24-year-old woman, I'll tell you that. And so, you know, I really tried to play to the crowd that I was this sort of a sort of stiff British person who was very much in control of the room. But as I said, I wasn't selling art. I was selling charity items. And so what I realized after probably 500 auctions was that if I stopped pretending that I was a British nan who was 20 mm-hmm. years older than I was and started acting my age and brought to the table the things that I knew in the world that I was living in, it was probably going to be a little bit more appealing because frankly, there's something really funny about the fact that there's a young woman on stage doing a job that is absolutely not supposed to be a job that she's doing. Right. So absolutely. Of shying away from that and using this sort of force field of what I'd seen done before me, I realized that I could turn it into a performance that was about the fact that I was young and I wasn't, I wasn't doing what other people were doing. And that was ultimately how I found success. And so that's my sales approach. You know, I, I'm very warm. I'm very friendly. And when I meet you to talk about sales, the last thing I start off talking about is sales. The first thing I start talking about is getting to know you as a person and understanding what makes you tick. Because at the end of the day, that's what's going to get a sale is when you trust me and you trust that what I'm saying is real, because then you will buy from me or you will learn from me. However, you're, you're sort of in the middle of that sale.
0: Um, when you look back at things that have influenced you to put you on this path, give you this confidence, write a book, do a half a billion in in charity auctions. You mentioned uh, your friend or your peer at the time when you were 30, you know, that was a light bulb that you had that, that kind of made you on one path. What were some other influences or speeches or people that you look back at and say, okay, you know, this was really important for a specific turning point in my career.
1: So I gave a speech. First, I am a keynote speaker. speaker, And when I first started speaking, I spoke after this woman named Carla Harris, um, who was one of the first African American women sort of in wall street and has been at Morgan Stanley, I think for over 30 years now. And she was speaking on stage and she said something that I have never forgotten, which is, um, perception is the co-pilot of reality and that's a tagline i mean you would never know what that means but the explanation that she gave really stuck with me so i'll share it with everyone please so she when she was working at morgan stanley she said that she was very detail oriented and it used to drive her crazy because these people that she worked with would come in to her office like 2 minutes before a presentation and sort of throw something on her desk and be like will you look at this and she said you know one day i realized like i need to stop this behavior because A, they're not giving me enough time. B, I can't even help them. And C, it's just, it's frankly really disrespectful that they're doing this. And she said, this guy walked in, threw something on her desk. Can you look at this? I have to present it to the CEO or something like that. And I just want like a quick glance at it. And she said, you know what? I'm not going to look at this because the bottom line is I'm very detail oriented and I'll rip it to shreds. And if you'd given me time, I could have sat with it and really made some changes, but because you just threw it on my desk right now, you know, I just don't have time to do it. And she said that he marched out of the office and kind of rolled his eyes, whatever. A couple of weeks later, another person came into her office with a document and said, Carla, I know you're really tough and you're probably going to rip this to shreds. So I brought it to you with plenty of time so that you would have time to look at, bef- look at it before I present it. And she said that what she realized in that moment was that she had put the words in someone else's mouth about how she wanted to be perceived. Right. And so when i wrote the, the title of the book the most powerful woman in the room um that's how i sold the book it wasn't as you until i started writing it. it was just the most powerful woman in the room after i sold it and the new york times wrote sorry the new york times published that i was writing a book that frankly i had only written about a chapter of and then all of a sudden everybody's looking to me as the most powerful woman in the room and it was amazing because i didn't feel that but After I finished writing the book and after I finished promoting the book, I absolutely felt that. And I would say it was funny because anytime anyone would do a conference where there was a power woman, I would get the call. And if there was a panel that someone attended where I wasn't on it, I would also get the call and they would say, there was a panel on powerful women and you weren't on it, Lydia. (laughs) And it was just such a funny, it it was all of a sudden I became this person who I feel like I felt i was that way inside but to actually say those words and then to have people hold on to that and then take that as fact is kind of the manifestation of what carly harris said on that stage that day
0: wow that is very powerful um and it, it's like it, it's the common theme that we've been talking about which is if you don't put it out there there's literally no chance of it happening but because you put it out there you put this theme out there this concept out there it came back and grabbed you and, and it kind of manifested and you, you became who, who you said you thought you were going to be.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, so y- we, you know, we talked briefly that you have, you have, uh, you have a kid uh, you have child, like you have, sorry, do you have one kid or two? I
1: have three. <laughs> you have three. Sorry. I have three. <laughs> sorry. About that.
0: Now are, are you, what are some of the lessons that you're teaching them about, um, uh, about this, about this kind of having this kind of confidence about, you know, this framework that you've developed, are you putting that into, into them? Or are you kind of letting them learn on your own? Like you learned on your own?
1: No, I mean, I definitely, you know, especially with my daughters, I I really push them to ask for things all the time because I know I see it. I see them not wanting to ask for things. And I realize that this is the time to push them through that moment of weakness where you feel like you can't quite ask for something and you learn these lessons at an early age. So I definitely start that. And then I talk very openly about finance in our house, about what things cost and the fact that mommy and daddy go to work because that affords us to do certain things. And I think that those are things that kids need to hear because it, it makes them understand that the world isn't just handed to you. Um, you have to go out and create opportunity and create your luck and create the income that allows you to live the life you want to live. And, and all of those things, I think at a young age, hopefully will help my children understand that life is a journey, but it's a journey that you can control.
0: Right. I love that. Super powerful. Uh, I try to do the same thing with my kids a little bit younger, I think, but um, that's something that we, my wife and I talk about a lot. Um, you know, I, I you're at Christie's now. You're part of the leadership there. You're running one of their biggest businesses. Uh, I have to ask about COVID now. I mean, Christie's has been around for 300 plus years, I think, has seen everything um, that we think is has been bad and good in the world. Is there anything different in how Christie's and you and are thinking about this pandemic we're in um, and, and what are you guys doing about it?
1: Yeah. I mean, like everybody else, I mean, we are a global company right now. So one thing that we're trying to do is shift the locations where, you know, for instance, with Hong Kong right now, China is opening back up trepidatiously, but, you know, we'll be doing our first sale in Hong Kong in July this year. Um, You know, it's, it's sort of making a lot more of an effort to engage our clients digitally. We've always as a company focus so heavily on getting people in the door to see the art. But I think now we're realizing that it's important as well to be engaging them in a variety of different ways digitally, not only educating them about the auction process, but also educating them to the fact that art is therapy. I mean, if you look through the ages starting, you know, I mean, through the entire history of art, you will see pandemics and you will see, horrible instances that are happening around the world that are literally on a canvas because somebody is feeling that emotion and painting real time and so we've been encouraging our clients to really dive deep into the art and understand that this has been done before people use art as therapy and allowing them to understand that you can sort of see that eventually things do go back to good so yes there are moments of intense pain and angst it's like what we're seeing right now with COVID-19, but you know, you can also see the recovery of countries and of people and of human nature um, against all odds. So there's a lot of hope, I think, to be found in art. So pushing out that messaging as well.
0: Are you seeing a reset in pricing or, or new floors on art or charities or anything like that, just because the economy has slowed so much?
1: You know, I think that we'll always see that during a recession in any, in any recession, you're going to see people sort of pulling back, but you know, one thing that people know is that art holds its value. So it's a great place to invest. Um, so we're still seeing, you know, people are still buying more along the private sales rather than at auction because we're not, we're not obviously having auctions right now, but, um, but you know, in the charity world, it's really tough simply because this is the busiest time of year in New York for all of our charities. It's when we've yeah, probably 40 times between April and May, uh, raising money for charities. And right now we just can't do that. So a lot of them have been pushing to later in the year um, or engaging other fundraising tools to try to engage their constituents and their biggest supporters at this time. But it's tough. I mean, the need is so great in so many different so many different industries, and I feel like there's a new nonprofit that's almost popping up every day just because there's another area that's been hit hard. So, hopefully, hopefully, the government will be able to do what they can do to get us through the next couple of months, and then we'll go back to a place where you know the private citizens can continue, can continue to support the nonprofits the way that they have historically in America.
0: Absolutely. Um, Lydia, I really want to thank you for your time. This was such a great interview. Uh, I learned so much and I'm, I'm really excited to read your book.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Well, I, I hope you enjoy it. And honestly, this has been such a lovely way to spend the day. So thank you for having me on your podcast.
0: Thank you. I'll talk to you soon.
1: Okay. Sounds great.
0: Man, that was good. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, Remember, we are on all social media. Uh, Personally, I'm at Sid Shaw Live on Twitter and Instagram. The podcast is at WhiteRabbit underscore pod on Twitter Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Hit us up. Tell us what you want to hear. Tell us what you want to talk about. Leave a comment. Tell your friends. See you next week.